Bonzilla presents Star Trek. Each week we warp speed into the world of Star Trek. This week, the Next Generation crew travels back in time to stop the Borg from preventing the future of humanity. It's 1996's Star Trek First Contact. Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to Bonzilla Presents. I am Nick. I'm Will. And Will's back, everybody. Yes, I'm back. he is here. Uh, we once again want to give a shout out. Thanks, Kenny, for, for filling in uh, on our last episode, which was a lot of fun. Um, and the, I had to explain a little bit about the Cannonball Run. I told Will a little bit about the movie, uh, which was, you know, some fun stuff in there. So and uh, also thank you guys for listening to it. I, I wasn't expecting like a whole lot of listens, honestly, and it's it's right in, in in the same wheelhouse as a lot of our other Bonzilla Presents episodes. Very successful. So again, thanks for thanks for listening. And thanks, Kenny, for for joining us or joining me, I should say. The my favorite new thing that I saw on the um, I think it was on the on I was going to say on the Twitter, uh, but the, my favorite thing I saw on, on the Bonzilla Twitter was yeah. that apparently somebody thought that we we had like we were done we were done done yeah in yeah. 2020 yeah right yeah in 2020 and then they came back and then they saw like a bunch of episodes yeah and uh, I can I can relate to nothing's better than coming back to a podcast or having a a um a back catalog of episodes of a podcast so mm-hmm. I get it well uh well, speaking of Bonzilla, um, how do you feel that we're allegedly less than a month away from No Time to Die? Um, I don't know. I mean, I have to say, like the la- the most recent trailer that they put out for it is like like the first time I've been like really excited about it. Mm-hmm. Like, I just thought, well, I shouldn't say that because I older trailers like look pretty good, but. I think that seeing them like kind of sell the movie a little bit more. Yeah. It definitely looks more intriguing. Mm-hmm. It's just weird because I've had this, it's definitely been a, a constant thing since like sort of the big, all the big like COVID related delays and everything, but movies keep sneaking up on me. And I just, I think it's also because I'm not just not paying attention, but also I think it's because like, we don't have these big events of like the comic cons and D 23 expos and stuff where like, trailers come out early because like like the matrix trailer dropped like that and i didn't realize that was this year you know yeah yeah that i i um, and, had to wrap my head around that one too. and same thing because i was reading about the the next disney animated film like Encanto or whatever and that's also coming out this year and i'm like we haven't seen a trailer for that either but i also feel like it's weird because like when i was a kid or even like early on in like our like film loving days. I feel like like that first trailer would come out so early for a movie. And now you barely get the first trailer for stuff like, like a couple months out, which again, makes sense well, because but, we don't really know what the status of films are a lot of yeah, times. I mean, but, but that's like, because of 
this year and yes year. no i know but it's just like it's really just like oh man like movies are just really sneaking up on me and even like I mean, no time it, to it, die in this case like i mean it's not even just movies like you and i watch like the disney plus stuff too yeah and there's still things slated for this year i mean there's right. not that many months left this yes year mm-hmm. so it's a lot of you know it's a lot the, the funny thing about no time to die though is that no time to die feels like the real last vestige of the first like casualties yes of the pandemic yeah yeah because like because i think it was like obviously kong uh, Kong, like, versus Kong was in there. Black Widow Black was a big Widow. one. Yeah, I mean, like it's just funny that that this movie has been held out for so long. Where it's like we've gotten like Black Widow out of the way and Kong um, and yeah, and, and like all the that, other Disney films and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, like things have kind of have like kind of set their fate about what they're going to do. Yes, whereas like No Time to Die is like very much like we they want to plan that as much as possible because now when you look at the slate it's like we're kind of approaching the movies that weren't close to coming out and mm-hmm. now are being like okay well maybe we'll just push it back maybe we'll bring it up you know what i mean it's like yeah. so we're kind of like these are like the up the question is what are these upcoming movies going to do yes whereas opposed to like no time to die feels like the last movie that has overstayed its welcome and not coming out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was supposed to come out in April of last year, right? Like, it was, like, right at the beginning of all this madness. And now it's apparently finally going to happen. Um, and that and, that and um, apparently there's a Kingsman movie coming out. Yes. Which, did it come out? I don't no. think so. No, the, the, they did drop a new trailer recently. Okay. No, I think it's. I think that's now beginning of next year, though. Right, right. Or I don't I know. I, like, but I don't know. Like, so let, let's let's parse this out real quick. Like, so it's slated to come out, what, in October? October 8th. Now? And now because everybody went to go see Shang-Chi, mm-hmm. which is the funny, my funny, the funniest thing about that was, remember Venom, the new Venom movie? Mm-hmm. It was kind of like, oh, like, it's coming out in theaters that was like it's marketing and then yes. it's like okay it's coming out at this time but then it's like okay well we don't know like if it's going to come out at that time or if it's going to come out next year and then like the weekend the week right after shang chi i don't even think the week i think it was like the weekend of shang chi it was like all right we're coming out in october yeah so that's the most bizarre thing to, just this really live feed of release schedules yeah really funny so anyway (laughs) so the reason i bring that up is like so now with that said what is your feelings on how the rest of the year is going to look because pending some strategic some strategy that they want to do or some truly awful thing that happens in the world like i feel like maybe now we're getting to the time where like people like they're just gonna like keep they're just going to release the movie. Well, yeah, no, I think I think it, it, one is at a certain point where they just got to release the film and and get it out. I think the other thing too, it's like it's interesting with Shang Chi specifically, and also No Time to Die. Uh, I think what's interesting about them is like Shang, one of Shang Chi's the big, I guess not the big deal, but unlike the other big Disney releases this year, 
it didn't have a simultaneous streaming release that they're doing a delayed streaming release and then no time to die it's again like we're getting one of those things where it's like you see the trailer you see there was a commercial for it like today on like you know college game day or whatever the football and like it's like only in theaters right we're getting back to that thing where it's like this one's not going to be on HBO Max. This one's not going to be on Disney Plus. You got to go to the theater to see it, which I think is going to be an interesting way. Again, the big fights and that studios are having with movie theaters and that actors are having with studios about these release things. That's going to be an interesting thing in terms of people going to the theater too, because again, it's not like you can see No Time to Die same day on Amazon Prime. No, you got to go out and see it. And well, I think for, we're, we're seeing, we saw with Shang-Chi that kind of worked because not being on Disney Plus, does it did it did that correlate with it having a big box office, or was that just coincidence? I guess we're going to have to see with the rest of these movies coming out. Well, there's precedent set too. I mean, Free Guy was similar. Yeah, for, really, that's true. Or, that's true too. Yeah, like I don't know the exact numbers, and everything has the asterisks of the pandemic on it. Yes, but my understanding is that it did pretty well, mm -hmm. and that's another. And and to be honest, that was another film that had that it had that uh that double hit of uh theater only and then also like good word of mouth yes like that was a movie that like everybody was like oh it's a surprise movie i haven't seen it but it was like you know everybody was talking about like oh this was like a kind of an out of nowhere gem of a movie and then shang chi is kind of similar mm -hmm. the thing about shang chi though too is like i i don't again i'm sure like people who follow this would know better than me but just anecdotally and just culturally right now it seems like the first it feels like the first big back to the theater success at least in a way that like i now i'm kind of getting the vibe that people are like yeah let's go to the movies mm -hmm. in a yeah. way that even some of the other like my, like minor successes of the year haven't quite been yeah for sure. And I, and I think it's yeah. it, it will be interesting to see that with No Time to Die, because, again, you know, it was a film like we're, we're at a point, right, that like it's one of the bigger gaps between Bond films now. It, it rivals, you know, it's right up there with that gap between uh, a License to Kill and Goldeneye now. Um, it's been a long time since we've had a new Bond movie. You know, and we're still doing the Craig thing and, you know, a movie that was like originally slated for like the end of 2019 delayed to, uh, you know, April 2020 to November 2020. And then now all the way to October 2021. It'll be interesting to see, you know, how that does. And again, how they're kind of playing into like this is the final Craig, you know, this big era that's coming to an end. It'll be very interesting to see like how it all pans out, especially again with the movie's quality and what the actual plot of the movie is. Because even with the new trailer, it's not like as if we know what this movie is really about. Like there's there's still a lot of mystery in terms of like what the actual content of right. the movie is. They're still kind of holding that pretty close to the chest. And then, yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is going to be interesting to see is if they get closer to the date and then they do some sort of like story of streaming thing because the only reason that makes me think that is because I, I saw Halloween did that. Right. Like that it was a theater thing. And I don't know if it's day same, same as like the release or if it's like, it's going to be on Peacock next week or something like that. But I know that was like a recent yeah. announcement. Right. And it's like, again, because the thing is, is that, uh, you know, MGM now has that connection with Amazon. You know, they are kind of, again, 
kind of in this weird buyout phase, but you know, they've also said that, you know, Hey, we're not doing like a James Bond series, but I'm sure that'll change at some point. But you know, yeah, like Halloween, that, Halloween kills is going to be um, day of day on date. And that's on Peacock. Yeah. On Peacock. It's interesting. It's interesting. But that's the thing too, is a lot of this stuff is ever changing. We saw it with the venom thing. We just talked about that, but that, you know, honestly, that all this being said, like, I do think, you know, I think at a time, and it could still be a little eye-rolling, the whole, like, oh, it's going to only be in theaters. But, you know, I made this point, you know, because Suicide Squad came out and didn't do nearly as well. Mm-hmm. But it, I don't know if it's the complete factor, but it must have been a factor that if I went to the theater and it was Free Guy and Suicide Squad, and one of them I can see at home and the other one I can only see at the theater and I'm interested in like the other one, I'm probably going to go see the one I can only see in theater yeah. and then come back home and watch Suicide Squad. Yeah, no, it's so true. I mean, I'm it's sure that must be a factor. It's going to be a lot of questions, especially as we get into like these movies that aren't haven't been delayed by the pandemic oh, as we get oh. into more and more of those. And then one more factor I think is actually super interesting about these other two films, like with Shang-Chi and Free Guy. These two films are, like, really, like, family fun time films. I haven't seen Free Guy, but the vibe of it is a lot more, like, jovial Mm -hmm. and, like, a good time at the theater. Shang-Chi, which I have seen, is more of, like, a family fantasy action film. Yeah. And not, like, a, you know, a traditional blockbuster shoot-em-up action film. So that's another aspect I'm going to be really interested to see. This will be a movie that I think is really going to show what the pull of the name James Bond is. Yes, I agree. That's really the, it, what it's going to have to hope. Yeah, for. it's it, it's but it's like it's going to be because again, it's like the pull of the name James Bond and the pull of the Daniel Craig era of Bond as well. You know, is going to be it's going to all yeah. be encompassed in in this movie release. But again, we are less than a a, a month away from it, and. We will work something out, but we will eventually have a, a Bondzilla review to kind of really finish up the true Bondzilla podcast era because we got Godzilla versus Kong earlier this year and our other one that we were supposed to do in 2020, which was No Time to Die. We'll also have our thoughts on it and we'll see how the Craig era wraps up in our minds and hearts. Absolutely. Also, well, very important thing, Bondzilla uh, you know, happened uh, this week as well in that Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man Tell No Tales is finally on Disney+. Plus. And of course, if you missed the announcement, that is our next series. Uh, we'll have uh, the first Pirates movie later this month. And I know, Will, you're excited to to dig into those. I am. I am. All right. Well, with that, today we're not talking about Pirates, not talking about Con, we're not talking about Bond, even though it was its classic Bondzilla podcast, especially classic Bondzilla 2020 podcast is us talking about what's going on with theaters um, and stuff like that. That's always classic, but we are not talking about any of that what's stuff What's the now. deal with theaters? We are talking about Star Trek once again. We are back on the Star Trek train. We are back to the next generation series of films. We're talking about the second film in this next generation series star trek first contact from 1996 and will are you ready to discuss star trek first contact i'm i'm ready well it would be it'd be foolish to resist because as you know 
resistance, resistance is, fu- is futile. Is futile. All right. So as we usually do, let's talk about the making of this movie. And it starts off back when they were talking about making these next generation movies in the first place. When uh, Paramount approached uh, Rick Berman to you know make movies based on the next generation after the uh, original series movies had wrapped up. Really, they talked about, okay, we're basically going to plan out two of these movies that we want to do two of them. We're going to do the first one, which became Star Trek Generations. And then pretty much right after that, we want to get rolling on on the next one. Because again, remember, Star Trek is this big deal for Paramount. It's their big franchise. And in the same year, you know, they're just about to figure out their Mission Impossible thing, which will become one of their signature franchises going down the line. But right now, Star Trek is really like the main thing that they have on the docket. So they kind of want to keep this train rolling with the success of the Next Generation series. And once Generations happens, yes, it's a, you know, money success, not necessarily a critical success, but they are still on track. Okay, we want to do another movie. And basically, Paramount's very happy with the production team that was uh, in place for Generations. So Rick Berman stays on as a uh, executive producer and a producer on the project. And they bring back both Brandon Barga and uh, Ronald D. Moore to do a new screenplay. And this one, you know, there's a lot of kind of debate about what what to do next with Star Trek and what to do next with the next generation cast. And especially the main thing that they decide is that, okay, this is going to be the first Star Trek movie with no ties to the original series. We're not bringing back any original series actors. We're not making any references uh, over overt references to like the original series cast and crew. Um, We are going to do a full Star Trek next generation movie. And Berman's idea is, okay, well, let's do a fun time travel adventure because that's definitely worked. Obviously, we had Star Trek four. We've had many episodes of both the original series and Next Generation that dealt with time travel and going to different eras. And even to an extent, like Generations did that. But Berman said that was some of the more successful stuff he felt in Generations was kind of going back to different you know, parts of, you know, you know, the, the past or whatever. So let's take a time travel adventure. Meanwhile, Moore and uh, Braga said, okay, well, what do we do next with Star Trek? And their idea is, well, why don't we do something with the Borg? Uh, the Borg were a new enemy that was made for the Next Generation series uh, to help, you know, you know, kind of differentiate things from the Klingons and the Romulans that were still around, but, you know, had, you know, different things in sort of this future timeline. So the Borg were one of the major pop culture things that came out of that new track and you know again with the episode that everybody credits is like okay star trek next generation has made its own mark is you know the best of both worlds that infamous two-parter where you know picard is integrated to the borg that got a lot of attention for the series and the borg were kind of a mainstay of new trek culture even from a for a casual audience but you know, Moore and, and Braga were part of the writing team on that series, and they kind of knew that, well, they didn't really use the Borg after that season four episode because they didn't want to overuse and they were expensive to use and they didn't want to kind of give the fear factor. But they thought, well, with a bigger budget, with a movie budget, we can really make the Borg what we want them to be, and we can kind of really push that as a marketing. So Berman gets this time travel idea. Moore and Braga are talking about the Borg, And their thought was, well, why don't we combine the two? Let's do a time travel story involving the Borg and, you know, kind of 
the Borg go back to Earth and try to, you know, get rid of humanity for the reasons that, you know, they've been defeated by humanity more than any of the other, you know, races they have assimilated. And, you know, the Star Trek crew has to, you know, prevent the future from being totally Borged out. So everybody loves that idea and they immediately start going on to it. And Berman's first idea for the film is, well, let's take them to the Renaissance. He's like, okay, it's the modern, you know, modern European society comes out of the Renaissance. You know, it's like kind of the big evolution in, in humans. Len the Borg kind of basically get rid of, you know, humans, human society as a total. So the original script is written called Star Trek Renaissance and features such scenes as Picard having a sword fight in a castle and Data becomes uh, Leonardo da Vinci's assistant and the Borg are, are holed up in a, in a castle dungeon. And Moore and Barger are like, this is a little too campy. And not that Star Trek can't be campy, but this is a little too comedic for the Borg. And the Borg, we should feel like, should be kind of a scary, cold entity. And 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 putting, like, you know, having uh, Picard dress up in, like, Renaissance tights and have, like, an Errol Flynn sword fight is not the direction we want to go with the movie. And... It's uh, Braga who suggests, well, why don't we not dip into human history as much, but let's dip into Star Trek lore. Let's talk about like the, the, the moment when humanity became part of this larger universe, the story of First Contact, which was, which was established canon in the original series, the story of Zeppelin Cochran and his you know, creation of the warp drive. All that comes from, you know, the original series era, but it's never been actually explored in, in actual Star Trek canon in, in any of the shows. So why not actually do that? We can kind of make up a little bit of our own history. We can take Star Trek lore. You know, we can kind of have some more freedom with it, make it a little more modernized to an extent and still, you know, have this great fun time travel adventure and have this the Borg, you know, fighting. So that script is kind of written out and um, much, much better received by all parties involved, including the cast and the crew. And they basically uh, decide, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have Picard on the ground with Zeprim Cochran. Zeprim Cochran is going to be knocked out. Picard has to redo his you know, mission and, and the warp drive and, and make contact with the aliens. Well, Riker and his team are stuck on the ship fighting the Borg. But then it's it's Picard, uh, it's it's John, not John, not John Stewart, Patrick Stewart. <laughs> John Stewart as Picard would be a very different thing. Uh, Patrick Stewart reads the script and he's like, "Well, it doesn't make sense. Like my character is the one character that has had such a connection with the Borg, you know, has been the Borg, and I never interact with them at, at any part of the movie." And Moore's like, "You know, that's right. Hey, he doesn't. You know, we should have this big journey with Picard and his feelings on the Borg because that's." was very roughly, you know, not as well uh, seen on the show. They did like an episode about the aftermath, but never really showcase his kind of PTSD and his, his issues with becoming a Borg as much as they could have. So they basically rewrite the script one more time to swap everything that now Picard stuck on the ship fighting the Borg and having this big sort of revenge mission in his head. Well, it's, it's Riker and, and Jordy on the ground having to help out Zeprim Cochran. And at that point, the, the Zeprim Cochran role gets expanded a lot more uh, to actually becoming a character. Now, the one thing about the Zeprim Cochran role is 
it's not really the same. Zephyr Cochran is a character that appears on the original series where he's like kind of stuck on a planet. And the kind of more drunk party older man that's seen on Farce Contact is not really that character. But more and Braga were like, we're not concerned about that going that deep in the can where you have to like exactly match the character. And again, I get the sense when you read interviews with them that they have a respect for the original series in terms of what it brought in terms of, you know, Trek as a pop culture icon, but they also don't hold it in that high regard and that they, they don't hold it as synchromo, you know, sacrosanct. They, they, they can play with the original series as they did in next in the generations and they do here, but they basically kind of wrote, we're interested in making Zephram Cochran, his own character. Um, so then it's time to find a director for the movie and, and then kind of get to casting from there. And obviously we know all the original, the, the, next, the original next generation cast is going to return, but Paramount's first instinct is to go big directors. Uh, generations, they had, they had gotten the director from the television series. So they were, they were going to go, hello, hello, hey, we're going to make this our big fall release and we're going to get a big name director on it. And it's going to be a big marketing push. And the first two names they ask are Ridley Scott and John McTiernan. And both are flat nose. Scott's like, just basically he's done his sci-fi stuff. He's kind of doing more other things, you know, as his Black Hawk Downs his you know, eventually Gladiator is going to be like developed around this time as well. And McTiernan never seemed like the dude that was going to be interested in like sci-fi stuff, just knowing his, you know, he's one, he's a great, great director, but it's just not, not his bag to do sci-fi. And as Paramount discusses other options, Again, they kind of, you know, get Patrick Stewart involved. Patrick Stewart involved. He's like, I, I want someone that knows Trek because that's always when these films are most successful is someone who kind of has this respect for the, for the Star Trek canon. And so there, then Paramount's like, okay, that makes sense. Let's get someone that can just do Trek. We got the writers that know Trek, the director know Trek. They'll make this movie easy. It worked getting Leonard Nimoy to do a movie. Why don't we just get a cast member to do this movie again? So it's uh, Jonathan Frakes, of course, who plays Riker, uh, is signed on to direct the movie. And, and Frakes, unlike Nimoy, had had experience directing. He had directed more than a couple episodes of The Next Generation. And he had actually, in post, uh, you know, because of that, and even to now, he's still a regular television director. Uh, but this would be his first feature film. So Frank said he had to get used to doing like with, with actual film cameras and actual like, you know, higher quality cameras and different aspect ratios. But he basically went into the same rhythm that he had uh, on the show. And especially because his familiarity with the cast and the crew that, you know, he a very, he's known as a very efficient director. His, his, his nickname on, on set was two take Frakes because he basically would always have, like two or three takes, he knew exactly what he wanted. So with that, you know, basically the rest of the cast, you know, Patrick Stewart's obviously eager to come back um, uh, as Picard, and he's very interested in digging into the Borg stuff, especially since he said, like, I want to have, you know, explore my relationship with the Borg and everything. So he's very eager to kind of get into the nitty gritty of his character uh, in this movie. And especially because Patrick said that, is also fun because of the switch to him on the ship. It also allowed Picard to become a little bit more of an action hero in this movie than he had previously been 
in like the show and in generations that he did get to have a little bit more of like an action hero vibe. And that was also a fun, different way to play Picard. Uh, just some brief notes on the, the rest of the cast um, in terms of the returning cast. Uh, Brett Spiner, of course, returns his data. And I just mentioned this because this is in that era where we talked about this a little bit early on with Trek, where like the rumors would be in fan magazines. But now we're, we're entrenched in the era of the Internet and the beginning of the crazy Internet film rumors. So it kind of leaked at one point that like, oh, data was going to have some skin removed uh, like a, at a point in the movie, just like kind of that fact. And so big Internet rumor was like, oh, they're removing his skin so that they can put new skin on him and recast data because Brett Spiner wants to leave so he can have a completely new skin. But but uh, Spiner was very eager to keep playing data. And again, he thought it was also interesting that he would get to play an android really going against these other android, you know, cybernetic creatures. Uh, LeVar Burton also returns as uh, Jordy LaForge, and he finally got his wish of not having to wear what he called the air vent over his eyes anymore, um, that uh, he, he had said that it was un uncomfortable and it didn't allow like his eyes to do a lot of acting, so it kind of limited him in the role. So he convinced Moore to write in ocular implants uh, for the character, which is not explained just in the sense that like he just has them now, and they both felt like that you don't need to explain like why he got them, just that he's there. He still has kind of cybernetic eyes, you know, still plays to the character's original blindness. Everything's good. Um, I want to say too that, of course, Gates McFadden and Amari Sirtis return as Beverly Crusher and Deanna Troy. Both were very eager to kind of do more in the movie than in Generations. And a lot of the cast kind of felt that, that especially with, with Frakes at the helm and, and with, you know, more and, and really focusing on the next generation cast, they would get a lot more to do in the film and especially because at this point they had really considered themselves a family and they had missed actually doing the tv show together now that they actually had a break from doing it um so it's always fun for them to come back together uh one of the challenges for uh Moore and braga though was they wanted to bring back wharf and you know michael dorn is wharf um and the issue was, is that Dorn was still on the um, Deep Space Nine. He was still an active participant in the Star Trek series. He was not technically a part of the crew anymore. Uh, so they had to kind of figure out a way to get him in the movie. They eventually have a cameo from his shift to Defiant, and he gets, you know, kind of partially destroyed. The more was insistent. Paramount was like, oh, let's have a big moment at the beginning where Worf's ship gets destroyed. Like the stakes have never been higher because his, you know, an actual ship got destroyed. More was like, no, because that screws over Deep Space Nine and they have to integrate that in their thing. And it's like, okay, like this is a whole separate thing from Deep Space Nine. I don't want to get those writers on board. So eventually they kind of agree that it's more destroyed, but salvageable. That's why that line is in the movie. We do have some new cast members here and I'll start with the Zephram Cochran character played by James Cromwell. Uh, the big story with this one was that they wrote the part as you see in the movie with the kind of the more drunken, you know, kind of like cynical man. Uh, but Paramount, unbeknownst to everybody, was in secret conversations with Tom Hanks to come in and play the role of Zephyrin Cochran because Hanks is a big Star Trek nerd. And oh, he was eager. He said he would have taken a pay cut to take the role. And, and board said if it would have been Hanks, they probably would have rewritten the role to be more closer to the original Cochran that appeared in the original series. And it, it was close to happening, but the big deal was that 
Hanks wanted Paramount to delay filming because he had already committed to directing and starring in the film That Thing You Do. Uh, and Paramount was very insistent that they were going to have a winter 1996 release. So eventually, Tanks just had to say, like, okay, well, I'm just not going to be available for the role. So otherwise, they just did auditions. And one of the men who auditioned was James Cromwell, who more and, and Frank thought was interesting because uh, Cromwell had already done two guest spots on The Next Generation. He had already played two different characters in the Star Trek canon. And he wasn't necessarily asked to come back, but he literally just came into audition because he was just interested in the role and he liked playing with the Star Trek cast and thought it would be like a fun role. And, and Cromwell said one of the reasons that it appealed to him was not just his general interest in like extraterrestrial life, but he felt that of all the roles that he's ever seen or come across, that this was the closest to him personally. Um, and he said that when he took the role, he literally was just playing himself uh, as Zephram Cochran, which is a little bit more of the like, um, you know, the drunkenness put in there. But he was essentially playing a version of himself. And Franks was very happy to bring him on board. So that's how Cromwell gets into the movie. Um, also, one of Cromwell's friends, another uh, member of sort of the 21st century team is uh, Alfrey Woodard as Lily Sloan, uh, who kind of gets taken up to the ship and teams up with Picard throughout the movie. Um, Frakes was good friends with uh, Woodward, and it was actually one of the first people he met when he moved to Hollywood was, was her. And they like, like would barbecue together all the time. And then like Woodward said like, oh, I'll, I'll be your godmother because like, you know, Frakes really, he never had a godmother. So they just had a very close relationship. So Frakes literally asked her, hey, do you want to be in this movie? And he was like, it, it was a steal to get like in a former Academy Award nominated actress in this film and like a Golden Globe nominated winner and everything like that. Like he was just like, we're just really good friends and I just wanted to work with my friends. So that's how, you know, she was able to kind of get in the movie. And she also said that this was probably the closest role to just herself that she had ever gotten. And, and Franks had said that he kind of tweaked the role slightly to kind of be like, you know, his friend. So he just had a good, had a good time with her. Um, and then, of course, we have the uh, infamous Borg Queen, uh, played by uh, Alice Krieg, uh, and just another person that uh, uh, Frakes was a um, fan of, especially uh, her villainous role in the 1981 movie Ghost Story, where she kind of plays a ghost that's like haunting these 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 people. Um, so she was very, uh, he was very impressed by that performance and wanted to give someone who like, you know, had this kind of disturbing alluringness, you know, so to, to basically to make her look attractive, but as a Borg. Um, and Alice said this was definitely the most uncomfortable role she's ever taken because the prosthetic makeup and her contacts were very, very uncomfortable, especially the contacts she could only have it in for like four minutes at a time before they would kind of, you know be too uncomfortable to 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 keep in um one last thing note casting wise we do have a a fun little star trek cameo in this movie um with the uh robert picardo appearing as his character the emergency medical hologram from the series voyager uh which was immediately in the third season and he that, that was like i i could not remember where he fit into the the canon yes because i because i only remembered like that's a that's a bit that's a gag from the show yeah. yeah so he's a character on voyager um which was in the midst of its third season as this movie was being produced 
And he, uh, Picardo essentially talked himself into the movie because he was like, well, listen, you know, the Voyager would have the same, uh, you know, technology as the Enterprise and vice versa. And it would be a fun little moment for the fans to be, you know, this character that I'm in. So he basically pitched the more and, and Braga like, hey, just in, write me into the movie. And they're like, all right, that's, that sounds fun. Uh, so he kind of makes his way in there. And he has another actor from uh, Voyager, Ethan Phillips, doesn't play his character from the movie, but makes a cameo as one of the bartenders in the hologram sequence that's in the movie. And that was more so like, oh, he's usually very heavily maked up on Voyager. So we'll see if the fans recognize him. Uh, one notable absence from the movie is Whoopi Goldberg uh, is not in this movie. Um, and she, in fact, didn't find out about the movie until it was in the in the in like variety in the trade papers. And all accounts is that she was pretty upset. She wasn't asked back, especially because her character does have connections with the Borg in the show. Mm-hmm. But it was basically like she said at the end of the day, if they don't want me in the movie, they don't want me in the movie. There's nothing I can do about it. Um, one thing that also was very adamant about the movie itself, especially from the production team and Frakes and Moore and Braga and uh, everybody involved was that, okay, we have this big budget. Let's make the Borg look as cool and, and like as scary as possible. So the way that they kind of did the Borg in the movie was they basically cast a rotating crew of like about 12 to 14 people. And then basically would just give them different Borg makeup every day to, um, you know, make them seem like there's a lot more Borg on the ship and, and around. Uh, so basically they, you know, the makeup would take about an hour on the show just because of its, you know, cheaperness for the television. The Borg makeup on average would take about four hours uh, every day. And they tried to have so much more fun with all the different details about all the different tubes and everything and all the different eyepieces uh, and one note that is very funny is that they also tried to include a lot of in-jokes in terms of the Borg. So, like, for example, there's some Borg, like, you know, some of the Borg uh, have, like, flashing little bits on their eye. And those would all be Morse code for different members of the crew. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the Borg in the movie, uh, one of his eyepieces uh, features a toy TIE fighter. Um like that just they just put that in just for a little kind of joke like a star wars type of reference that like you can't really see it but it was just kind of like it's a little fun little in joke um it also does uh want to say that the industrial light and magic once again returns to this movie um and again much like with kind of the later era um original series films they had a lot of influence on how things looked and one of the big things was, you know, there's this big battle with the Borg ship at the beginning of the movie and Industrial Light and Magic was like, well, told Paramount, like, hey, like, you know, Starfleet would be sending all the different ships that they have. So let's let us allow us to make up a bunch of different new ships and new types of ships and everything. And Paramount was like, sure, like put whatever you want in there. So the Industrial Light and Magic team had like a had like a, a wonderful time just designing random ship designs to put in there and that that eventually would all become canon be reused in different star trek media like comics and books and everything like that and they got to all kind of name the ships kind of whatever they wanted so that was a very fun moment for uh the team uh from there they uh decided to do a whole new bridge set for this movie a whole new enterprise set um and there was a lot of it was just helped with the cinematographer of the movie uh, who was uh, Matthew F. Lenati, um, 
who you know had done poltergeist and strange days and he was able to kind of say okay we want to make the the you know the board parts of the ship so cold so let's have the rest of the ship be warmer and lighting and color so a lot of the, the all of that was kind of done um uh, with a new bridge ship uh though this is the last movie to use essentially kind of the original enterprise model or versions of the enterprise model um from the original series that for the next film they will basically do new models and mostly all cg but this one still uses the practical model kind of souped up a lot uh for the film um the hardest part of the movie to film was the zero gravity sequence uh because it was all on blue screen and and frakes was because it was zero gravity and they're all in the circle and everybody's wearing similar costumes and it's like hard to see like what the background would be and like it was is very difficult for frakes to kind of imagine like how this was going to be edited and how this would look so one of the visual effects teams basically rigged up like a um a special monitor that would basically showcase okay well this is where the earth's going to be in this shot so you kind of know how you know to like plan everything but but frank said it was the it was like a hell to shoot that scene and even bigger hell to edit that scene to make it kind of make sense uh, especially because you know you still had to do the zero gravity stuff and make it seem like they're being kind of slightly weightless in these in these suits and everything like that so that was a very much challenge, especially because, again, Frakes was doing the TV show where a lot of it was quick, quick, quick. And, and Frakes still had that reputation, as I mentioned, that he, would, he was a quick director. But him having a lot more time to kind of do everything almost was kind of a detriment, he said, because it's just allowed him to kind of overthink things a little bit, especially within that sequence. But yeah, I mean, it was basically they were trying to kind of update everything. So they they matched the Starfleet uniforms to the Deep Space Nine uniforms. Uh, they tried to kind of just make sure that the that the new kind of Enterprise E was very much up to stuff technology wise as well. Um, and especially sort of the the making sure the Borg looked good on film and especially the Borg Queen. Uh, Frank said one of his favorite shots to do, even though it was still tough, was the introduction of the board queen where she's coming down and kind of getting attached to the body and everything like that. That was part of his, uh, you know, one of his most fun elements of the film. And, and, and this was really kind of the crew becoming, you know, I said they, they, they really kind of showed themselves as a family. And, and this film especially was one where the, the crew just had the a hell of a time and they loved having Cromwell on set and um, Woodward on set and everybody was just, kind of having so much fun uh, making this movie especially because like there are you know it's not a full comedy but we definitely have the more comedic moments for the people on the ground with with the you know in, in the in the camp and even uh picard and data have their kind of fun moments on the ship and everybody thought that this was even making it a much more enjoyable experience than making uh generations um also, Jerry Goldsmith returns to the film once again to do the score. One thing to note about his score is that he purposely uses a lot of the same instruments he used in the motion picture for the Borg scenes, which kind of makes a connection between the V'ger ship and the Borg, uh, you know, which has always been a fan theory, but never necessarily confirmed. But, but Goldsmith was kind of very aware of that, as well as uh, Goldsmith allowed his son to actually write some cues for the movie as well. Uh, one other funny note before we kind of move on to the film is the original title of the movie, uh, working title of the movie was Star Trek Resurrection, 
And then Paramount quickly found out that there was going to be a movie called Alien Resurrection coming out right around the same era. Uh, so they went through a couple of other names, uh, such as Star Trek Borg um, and other such things of that nature. But eventually, uh, Star Trek First Contact was the final title um, as it's kind of the, you know, that's kind of the, one of the main elements of the film. And yeah, I think that's pretty much, I mean, a lot of other kind of stories about effects and everything like that, but I mean, pretty much the story is they're still very much on the Star Trek train, Paramount is, and they're very eager to, you know, make this, make this a big deal as the original series, because I think the other thing about it too is that while Star Trek was still a big name for them, Paramount was, again, still getting a little worried of, like, do we have a series now that the original cast is done? Because that was, again, still the very big pop culture giant was that original series cast. And now, you know, Deep Space Nine and Voyager were still successful on TV, but their ratings had started to slip, and they were no longer the biggest syndicated shows. Um, They had been overtaken by uh, Legend of Hercules and Xena Warrior Princess around this time. So that was kind of things. And, and again, Generations did good box office numbers, what was kind of like middling reviews. And, and Paramount was, again, why, trying to keep up with the rest of Hollywood and, you know, people making, you know, Terminators and alien movies and everything like that. So they, they were trying to kind of keep up and make sure they had at least a, a bit of the franchise pie. So they were all on game with this. And everybody thought that the Borg being there would be a good thing. And they thought that the movie itself was just going to be a much stronger piece than generations had been. And that's what they, they kind of hoped um, for the film as well. All right. And with that, Will, I think it's time to journey to their past, but our future still, but still, we've still got like 20 years or not. Oh, we still got 40 years until first contact supposed to happen, but let's, mm-hmm. let's go. Let's fight some Borg. Let's, Let's launch a rocket ship and let's make Star Trek First Contact happen. Six years ago, they assimilated me into their collective. I had their cybernetic devices implanted throughout my body. I was linked to the hive mind. Every trace of individuality erased. I was one of them. So you can imagine, my dear, I have a somewhat unique perspective on the Borg, and I know how to fight them. Now, if you will excuse me, I have work to do. I'm such an idiot. It's so simple. The Borg hurt you, and now you're going to hurt them back. In my century, we don't succumb to revenge. We have a more evolved sensibility. Bullshit! I saw the look on your face when you shot those Borg on the holodeck. You were almost enjoying it. How dare you? Oh, come on, Captain. You're not the first man to get a thrill from murdering someone. I see it all the time. Get out! Or what? You'll kill me? Like you killed Ensign Lynch? There was no way to save him. You didn't even try. Where was your involved sensibility then? I don't have time for this. Oh, hey, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt your little quest. Captain Ahab has to go hunt his whale. What? You do have books in the 24th century. 
This is not about revenge. Liar! This is about saving the future of humanity! Jean-Luc, blow up the damn ship! No! No! I will not sacrifice the Enterprise. We've made too many compromises already. Too many retreats. They invade our space, and we fall back. They assimilate entire worlds, and we fall back. Not again. The line must be drawn here, this far, no further. I will make them pay for what they've done. All right, and we're back. And before we get into Star Trek First Contact, I do want to give an update. Uh, the King's Man does come out on December 22nd, 2021, as of right now, as of this recording. So it is a 2021 release. Um, but That's yeah, funny. need to get that up there. But that is not what we're talking about today. Uh, we are going to be talking about Star Trek First Contact. We are we are into the Next Generation series fully now. And uh, with with the second film, where where does the Star Trek series stand right now? Yeah, this was... Um... This was another one where I had seen it already, so it was nice to kind of like. Well, I get no, I had seen Generations too, but you know, it's just kind of always. There's always something a little bit more rewarding in a different way because sometimes you know we'll see the movies for the first time and those are fun, and you get like a real good experience, and then this time you kind of get to like sit back a little bit and um, really. Uh, um analyze it or like pick it apart or like yeah. whatever you want to do because you had already seen it so um so this this was a treat going back and i have to say it was it was st- it was a treat going back and watching this um a lot less complicated feelings about it than the last film uh and uh yeah no i i, I think um yeah i i i really i enjoyed rewatching. It, this is this is easily uh, the best of the next generation films, mm-hmm. uh, and stands up there with the best of just Star Trek in general. I mm-hmm. think, I think this film, in many ways, even more so than any of the other next generation films, I think showcases the uniqueness and the fun of the next generation cast. And I think one of the things about it that really kind of struck me on this viewing is that I kind of feel very similar um, in many ways in terms of the motion picture. Which again, I, I love for for all its flaws and everything. I've I've said this before, but like the motion picture to um, Wrath of Khan and Generations to this film is what I feel like happens and what makes the film come alive is you really get more with all the characters. Like they they all get a little moment of some sort throughout the film. Whereas like Generations, it's very much like Picard and to an extent Data's movie. And yes, like everybody else is there, but they never really get like much to truly do throughout the film. Um, like it, 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 in comparison to Picard and Data, same thing in like the, the motion picture. Where it's like it's very much like Kirk's film. And like, you know, you got that Kirk and Spock and, and McCoy, but like a lot of the rest of the cast really don't get a moment to really breathe. Right. And this film, you really get the sense of everybody in, in the next generation cast gets their kind of moment. Uh, to have a little fun and to showcase what what makes them unique about the crew and, and showcase what what makes them a part of this family, and I think that really helps to you know make the film come more alive. 
And the other thing that helps to make Home Before Live is the fact that it's solely the next generation. And, and not only that, but it really digs into an important part of the lore of the next generation with the Borg, this very unique and interesting, you know, hive mind, cybernetic group of, you know, bad guys that has this connection to Picard and has this general sense of like, these are the big bads, you know, that's something that it really made apparent in the, in the next generation series. And it really kind of comes into this, in this film. It's just like the, the, this, the kind of the, just the, the evilness of them and the, the difficulty in fighting them adds so much to like the stakes of the film and, 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 and brings that element of it to life as well. And it, it brings out the best in Picard and the best in data and really the best of all these characters, I think. Yeah. One of it was I, I was just kind of thinking about this right now is one thing that is interesting about this movie and what kind of is distinct about all of the next generation movies from the original um, movies mm-hmm. um, is that the, these movies in a weird way feel more like, you know, like um um, like the missions of a military operation, but I mean, but in a very Star Trek way. So they're not really war movies, but just kind of like the, the, like you feel like it's these movies and it's actually quite appropriate given how the last one begins where they're on the ship and everything mm-hmm. and, and how that like this feels more like a naval seafaring crew and its adventures, and it kind of has like a very like, um, like a open open seas naval uh, like um, spending time with like the crew and like you know them going on like whatever different missions or whatever. Whereas like, you know the for me the original movies you know felt like Trek, but they always felt like really more like here's like the big idea that mm-hmm. we're exploring and it has human moments and it's about like humanity and there's political intrigue and all of that whereas like you know I think that you're absolutely right I think that speaks to though the more intimate intercrew relationships that you get to explore a little bit within these it's a it's a little bit of a different feeling i have from the previous films because like while obviously these films also do play with some ideas um it does feel a little bit more to the ground i don't know about grounded but it just feels like a little bit more like you're you're in the thick of it with this high this like the high um uh sea sailing uh crew yeah, and I think it also I mean, is a very much an advantage of these films coming right off the series mm-hmm. and, and kind of having that momentum and sort of the, the direct connections with those characters, especially on a, like a series like, you know, again, a more modern series like The Next Generation, which has its like, you know, still Trek where it's like episode to episode, but does have a larger sort of sense of continuity mm-hmm. than like, you know, the original series had, which it really was like every episode was its own thing because that's just the way TV was at the time. But also the original series films were coming off you know, like literally a decade away right. from the original series airing. And even when they really get going in, in the eighties, it's like almost like, you know, yeah, I'll get approaching more like the 20 year, you know, that sort of stuff. So I think it's just yeah. interesting. And I think it's, I think it's also just, you know, I, I think what really benefits Trek as a total is that this crew feels so different than the original series. It'd be very easy to do like the, the sequel series, but like, okay, all the same sort of dynamics, but, 
the fact that this movie really showcases again the uniqueness of this crew and their specific issues and that yes like there are some similarities between data and spock but data and spock are also two very different characters with very different you know you know journeys and pathways and you know moments so that like you know, Spock encountering, if the Spock encountered the Borg, it's going to be very different than how Data encounters them and, and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I think it also kind of, again, works in the sense that you do have these two different stories, the one on the ship and the one on the ground. And they kind of have their nice, still slightly different tones, which I think also really helps the movie. The more kind of, yes, like there are funny moments on the Enterprise, but it is the more kind of like we're fighting the Borg action hero, like kind of horror, almost horror movie elements of just how the Borg are presented. Mm-hmm. Whereas once you get on the ground, it's more of the like, you know, kind of more comical, like lighter stuff with 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 um, Cromwell and like his, you know, not wanting to do everything and everybody revering him. Like there's a lot more of a nice balance in terms of the tone, which especially like when you talk about generations and like how that movie kind of, has some total whiplash at some point to just like where the actual the exploration in the movie is like it's just a really nice balance of kind of really all the best of trek is presented in this film yeah it's just yeah it's interesting because kind of like to all of those points I, i guess what i'm like i'm getting at too is that you know those other the other Trek films really feel like, you know, big sci-fi films where like, I don't know, sometimes like the, these, these films, especially this film has like the tone of like something that would be in like master and commander or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know what I yeah. mean? Like it's kind of like, yeah. like, even in a movie like that, you can see like the kind of the way in which they divide those stories that you're talking about. Like there'd be no difference between like, that's them on the Island somewhere. And then this is them on the ship dealing with pirates or whatever. Yeah. Like it just kind of has that, and that kind of tone to it um, mm-hmm. very and, much aided by by the presence of Patrick Stewart, right. which I think and, it always brings that like to life with these films. And again, brings Picard just to light in just a very, you know, Patrick Stewart way. Well, that and that's always what's kind of like also highlights the difference just within the two captains. Like, you know, we talked a little bit about Kirk and Picard and their differences in the last film. But, you know, because like Kirk is definitely more of like a you know a um a, like a why an eyes wide open like explorer type and like you know doesn't play by the rules type of guy whereas patrick stewart is like you know like the like the um follow the rules army guy like guy to mm-hmm. a certain extent but it's like he he is definitely more about being like the proper captain of the ship and and it's all about duty and like what, what what's our responsibility and and that stuff comes to play really well uh, mm-hmm. In this one, he gets a lot of moments to chew his scenery um, in, in this one. Um, lots of glass to break and just the things to... Yeah, the line must be drawn here. Yeah, the line this... must be drawn. No, my, again, and that's my, you know, and that's kind of hopping to this point in the movie, but like that whole, you know, you know the his big character moment when, you know, he has to realize... What's when he gets like called, yeah. When he gets called out for like his like you know irrational d- decision making, it just escalates and escalates, and then she, and then she's like, "Blow up the!" He's like, "Blow, just blow up the damn ship!" No, no. <laughs> it, it's cla- awesome. absolute classic Stuart. Where it's yeah. like, let, no, let, and he's 
you he that and that's in that storyline and him in that in that moment and as that character he he sells it it works mm-hmm. and and you really feel that moment of the um of of his uh of his journey at that point and you're bringing in all the baggage of the um you know the borg as a bad guy in the tv show and that's one thing speaking about the borg that this movie does actually a really good job on is that it does a good job at hopping into the universe as it was but it does mm-hmm. if you had never seen any star trek i feel like this one does a really good job of introducing the borg to you absolutely yeah i mean that was i know that was another big thing that they said is that the the reason that they did that opening sequence you know was to really establish you know kind of picard's relationship with the borg and also that again the frighteningness of the 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 collective Mm -hmm. but i think the film does a really good uh showcase of like the borg as you know an antagonist and sort of the the again like the drama and the issue with it and i think you're you're exactly right the film does a fantastic job at you know bringing that into a new audience where like obviously the trek audience is familiar you know the trek fandom is familiar and they're going to have you know an instant familiarity but i think it really does bring in like if you're just seeing the movies and not the shows that it really does showcase okay this is what makes the borg terrifying to to a certain degree well, yeah, and then, you know, because it was like, I, I don't know if it was a criticism I had, but just something that I had noticed is that the relationship with the Klingons in, like, the original movies was kind of, like, there, and you kind of had to just know via the lore that yeah. the Klingons were a thing, and it, and it kind of incrementally got introduced as, like, a factor within the films mm-hmm. as it went on um, in in a way that I think retroactively worked out more so than I think it was actually executed in a, in a well in a in a good way yes whereas like you hop into this and they i think they do split the difference well of like them being respectful to you know making it clear like it's not like the characters are just finding out about the borg for the first time like there's some familiarity with that but really selling it to the audience that this is a concept that they may not know like even just like that first scene um when you know they're listening in on the battle yes on like through the comms and then like and then and then you just hear the voiceover of the borg and like get ready to be assimilated and, and resistance is futile it's like the, all that stuff like even gives me chills like it's just mm-hmm. a really good villain introduction yeah and it's like I, I just mentioned too like that that opening kind of nightmare that picard has where he's like in this big mm-hmm. like borg thing and the and the the thing goes into his eye and then he wakes up and oh, it's still the dream. And he's like, you know, his face is becoming Borg or whatever. And then he actually wakes up. Like it, it really showcases, again, just sort of immediately showcases what Picard's mind is about the Borg and kind of, again, that PTSD he has about his time in the collective, but also truly showcases like this was what the Borg are about. And it's even like a, a small detail that I appreciate the movie. And it's like hard to really notice, but like it, once you notice it, it's really nice. One of the things I really like too is because of the increased like budget and stuff that they really, when you look at the Borg closely, that you actually do see like not just human Borg, but like Klingon Borg and, and Vulcan Borg and everything like that. So it's like, it really showcases the sort of wide reach of the Borg. And I think like some of the stuff that the queen gets into also kind of gets into that, but you get this sense of just the total annihilation that this, this, you know, 
race of cybernetic beings can can do to a person and a society. So I think it really showcases why the Borg became like this big part of Trek lore uh, from the Next Generation series. Yeah, yeah, I I, I, I definitely agree. I mean, um, they, and, they just sell that all well. Also, and I think one of the other successes and, and of the this, rules too, and the rules of how they work. Yes, and in terms of like they're easily yeah. adaptable, and you know, it's hard to like you know if you're once you're assimilated, it is difficult to get out of it. Yada yada yada, um, all that sort of fun, yeah, stuff like that. One of the other things about this movie that I also really appreciate is that it really it doesn't like meander in, into getting into it you know what i mean because immediately like picard wakes up from his like nightmare and he's like contacted by the federation and they're like oh yeah like the the borg are, are making an attack on earth and then you're basically you have a couple scenes where we're go- we'll talk about that they're like okay we're not going because they don't want us there and then they immediately like never mind we're going but it really just showcases like we're getting into it we're getting into it fast we're not like you know dancing around like the 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 point we're getting to this big battle and the time travel stuff fairly quickly into the movie. Yeah, that that's another thing I'm constantly amused at is how casual time travel is. Yes, like, increasingly because, like, so. It's a big deal and it does raise the stakes, but it's just you're so used to in movies where it's like time travel, like the fact that there's time travel is such a big deal, whereas here it's like, Oh, 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 they they act like it's like oh they're they're about to go in that hole they're about to like, well it's funny because they're, they're taking an exit they're taking the exit right there that's actually like very much within canon of Trek because like mm-hmm. basically in canon like time travel is essentially kind of accidentally discovered a couple times on the original series and then like by the time you know you have the next generation you basically you you like Star Trek has its own like TVA right they have their own like like time cops essentially that are like okay well now time travel is this more widely known thing so we got to make sure people aren't messing up with the timeline at all um but basically that's the way where it's like by the next generation era like time travel is a more kind of regular theory and a regular Mm -hmm. thing whereas like yeah even even in the original series it's kind of like hey like remember that time we accidentally slingsided around the sun and we accidentally went back to the 60s that was fun um but yeah so basically the whole thing is that they're they're in the the big war room, which is a was just a set in the next generation. I always liked is that big meeting room that they all are in, mm-hmm. and then it basically Picard's like, yeah, the Borg are going to attack Earth, but they want us to uh, keep an eye on the neutral zone in case the the Romulans you know take advantage of of this issue. And everybody's like, that's kind of bullshit. And they're like, yeah. And there's a really nice the the really nice shot where like Picard's like reflecting in his quarters like in the mirror, and then Riker just appears right behind him and just like kind of appears. That's a really I mean. Franks is having fun, but they're basically like, Hey, like, yeah, they don't want me near it because, you know, I've been involved with the Borg before and they don't, they, they think it's like uh, too risky for us to do. Um, but because it's like, even the nice line where it's like, we've done our first sweep Riker hands of the report. It's like, Oh, look at this, like two bits of space debris, <laughs> like, uh, you know, and a comet, yeah, the Federation will love to see this, like all that sort of stuff. And then, it, it really, again, just the interpersonal relationships between like Riker and Picard and stuff like that. And they're kind of like, you know, friendship uh, immediately kind of comes into play early on in the movie. So it's very much like, again, but we're getting right into it because not long after this, like, hey, the, the Borg have started to attack. They all sit in the bridge. They hear kind of the their initial reports and the, um, you know, the Borg speech and kind of it really like, you know, affects Picard. And he's like, we're going in. 
where and if anybody has, you know, objections, you know, you know, I, I will put them on record now because I know this is against our orders. And then, of course, great data moment where it's like, I speak for everybody when I say slight pause to hell with our orders, you know? Yeah. And then they all go into the big Borg battle. And it's like immediately the, the film kind of gets into this big battle with the big Borg cube and all these different ships going around. And it's kind of a spectacular sight. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, I was really enamored with just how the, the, the VFX of the of the opening looked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, no, I think, um, again, this is kind of like right. We're in I that. I couldn't tell if it was like, a, it was it is it enhanced miniatures? I it's a, it's, it's, it a, it's a mixture of a couple of things. It's okay, like, yeah, you know, because yeah. this is also, again, right. We're in that era now where like the first bit of like the big CG revolution mm-hmm. is happening. So a lot of it's like CG. Some of it is enhanced miniatures. Like I said, like the um, the Enterprise ship is still the model from the original uh, Next Generation series. But they are using a lot of CGI enhancements uh, throughout the throughout the this, yeah, this battle special if it was miniature use but it did i i just kind of liked how it looks uh yeah i i, I just i dug the look of it mm-hmm. um yeah and then we yeah this is where we are introduced to wharf in the film too where he's on his ship from deep space nine and lovely moment too where it's like it's the enterprise and like immediately like you know wharf knows that he's in good hands um and bring him, and they bring him on the ship. They bring all the survivors of the Defiant, and again, they give give them the lip service of like, "Hey, the Defiant's not destroyed, so the next generate uh, Deep Space Nine is still good to go." But it's a uh, it's a nice little ship. Little uh, uh, Michael Dorn yeah. is so good as yeah, Worf. No, Worf is great in this movie, and and you know, and this is also kind of like a Star Trek movie tradition that I do like quite a bit, um, where that you you get like the sense of like the continuity and the lives being lived mm-hmm. between each film and that they respect where each character would be. So instead of just contriving a way for like Worf to still be at the same post that he was in the last movie, you actually see like, Oh, well this is like a character who went on onto another ship and, mm-hmm. and things like that. And very similar to how Sulu was treated in the, in the uh, original in series. Movies. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just, that's a tradition that I, I kind of like with. Yeah. Yeah. There's another great small moment here where like, you know, we need some help on tactical and then Riker comes up the wharf. It's like, I hope you still remember how to fire like photon torpedoes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then, and Worf's just like not having any of it. Like he's been through this big battle and he's like, like, come on. <laughs> like, but I just love like, again, they're friends. They can all tease each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so eventually like, again, we got the battle. Of course, Picard reaches into his knowledge of the Borg. And like, you know, hey, we got to hit this specific part of the, the ship. Uh, you know, they destroy the ship, but before it's destroyed, they launch a probe towards Earth. And then eventually they see Earth is getting quickly assimilated. They realize it's a time travel thing. And Picard's like, you know what? Like, let's just, we got to follow them through. Because it's, again, his, 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 his sort of, as mentioned in the movie, his like Ahab type obsession with the Borg. It's like, there might, there might not be any way back, but they got to save the Earth because that's the only thing that can happen. I mean, obviously, it also time travel like they would they would be Borgified anyway. So uh, they go in and they end up uh, in the past. And uh, we also get our introduction here to our modern day crew. And I say that because it's technically, I think, 2063, I believe is the date. Um, yeah, it's like April 2063. Partying on the ground uh, post 
Third World War, which I always like to remind people is the war that was like all of like the con superhumans versus the rest of the world. That was the Third World War in Star Trek canon, which is always, always tickles me for some reason. The genetic, the, the eugenics war, as it's also known as. Mm-hmm. But basically, it's kind of this post-war world uh, in the mountains of Montana. Um, you know, they're all partying at this kind of former military base. And the Borg attack the base and destroy, you know, parts of uh, Sephiroth Cochran's ship uh, as he's kind of drinking and, and having too, too good of a time. And it's quickly the Star Trek crew realizes where they are in history as, as Picard, once he realizes the exact date. It's like the, it's basically the day before first, first con- contact. <laughs> first contact, yes. So it's like April 4th, uh, 2063, and they realize that they need to make sure that um, you know Cochran goes through with his his warp drive test to bring in the Vulcans that eventually come down uh, to you know ensure the feder- the existence of the Federation and the existence of humanity in the future. Um, so we get their first initial uh, party down to, and I also love the next generation. You know, just the technology that they have, where it's like, computer, get me twenty first century clothes. Like just like yeah, I, I clocked that too. That made yeah, me laugh. that they yeah. they just uh, which again is from the is from the um, the uh, the series as well. But just the the fact that in the future, like how do we blend in? Again, I think it's like the one thing where it's just like when you really think about actual lore, it makes sense. Now that time travel's been discovered, they need a technology to be like like hey, how do we blend in? Where it's like you know, on the original series, it was always like. Oh man, aren't you guys wearing really weird outfits? Isn't that crazy? Whereas, like, of course, like if they know time travel is a bigger thing, they're more, better prepared for it. So it's a little like nice little detail just from the next generation and the, the movie. But they eventually head down and they basically kind of formulate this plan uh, that they need to like you know rebuild the, the the Cochrane ship and make sure that the the warp drive you know test goes out on time so that again humanity's future can be saved. Um, and again, we get some more character stuff here. Like we get Picard and Data talking about, you know, their their own experiences with this with the ship. Where it's like, you know, Picard has seen the ship so many times in the Smithsonian, but he's never got to touch it. Data is like, well, you know, I'm touching it, and I I just detect all the all the uh, defects and the insecurities of this thing, and like I I, I don't really know how touch, you know relates with feeling so so we're still kind of on that train with with data and picard um also we get uh it's around the same moment where we get Riker with uh diana who's been drinking with with uh, cochran and fun little drunk moment drunk acting with her which i really like this scene together especially because again the two of them you know have a relationship history in the show so kind of see them kind of get together with this and, and Riker like knowing that she's drunk and Diana like trying to be like, no, I'm not. I'm, not, I'm OK. Like all that sort of stuff is fun. Classic drunk character who's not normally drunk. Yes. It's, 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 it's always a little treat. And of course, Cromwell is. I mean, he's James Cromwell. Like I don't know what else you can really say about the performance. Like he's just kind of being is like a rascally drunk old man who's like, you know, loves his 60s music, which is always funny because I obviously like it makes sense from a behind the scenes. But I was kind of thinking about like movies like this and Guardians where it's like, oh, yeah, like we're, we like 
none of the other music in the in the future, which makes more sense with Guardians. But it's like, okay, we're still listening to the '60s and the in the '70s of music. Mm-hmm. Always like just fun because again, it has to be because you can't make up good music. Uh, you can make up good music actually. Well, that's but... why it's really funny when they how they address that in the newer films. Yes, like where it's basically like it's classical, like, it's classical music, and yes, and Kirk is it, it's it, yeah, that's how they treat it. It's yeah. Um, but then like the, the real swap happens cause they're all game to like, okay, we're just going to all be down here and fix this ship. But then very strange things start happening on the enterprise where all of a sudden it starts to get more humid in certain places, starts to get more hot. Uh, they lose communication with a couple of deaths. We get a nice little horror mo- moment, horror movie moment where like kind of some of the engineers are going to the air ducts and we basically are kind of like, it's hinted that like there's Borg in there essentially that Borg have somehow infiltrated the ship. And uh, um, just like the little moments where I was like, why is it so hot in here? And then eventually Picard realizes like it's getting more humid because the Borg need to exist in a, in a more humid, hotter environment. There has to be Borg taking over the ship. So Borg and Data go back up to join the wharf and the crew that's on the ship where Riker, uh, uh, Jordy, and uh uh, Troy and Diana are stuck on the ground, basically making sure that this um, this launch happens. And that's basically the gist of the rest of the movie. We're cutting back between kind of the the battle between the Borg and the Enterprise on top, and and sort of again the sort of again like the very much like again horror movie type of vibes where there's always a Borg around the corner, and that you're like there's just kind of like many of them, right? It does feel kind of like like a like kind of an alien or type movie where it's just like there's just like you're fighting instead of fighting xenomorphs you're fighting borg you know it kind of is like an interesting um aesthetic for for those moments on the ship especially when you're combining it with you know kind of picard's emotions right and his get it his, his deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper desire to um you know get uh what's it called it's deeper, deeper, deeper desire to get revenge on the Borg and to make sure the Borg are completely wiped out. But I did forget an important detail is that, um, you know, Cromwell has his friend um, Lily, you know, uh, Woodward's, uh, Woodward's character. And she eventually like kind of is confronts um, Data and Picard in like the launch silo. And basically is like, what, who are you working for? Are you like the Russians? Like, you know, we're not part of the Eastern coalition, all that sort of stuff that happens. Eventually she kind of like faints essentially like when like data doesn't go down and like, you know, all that sort of stuff. And she's brought up to the ship that, that Beverly Crusher's like, listen, like she needs medical attention. We'll keep her dosed. We'll keep her under, but she needs some help. They bring her up, but she's stuck on the ship as well because the Borg attacked medical facility um, as part of their plan. And so that's where we get the emergency hologram. But eventually we do have a, you know, a modern day citizen stuck on the enterprise as well. So that's another big part of how the rest of the movie goes out as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what's, again, what I really like about this movie is just the different, the, I like the pacing, the pacing, I think really helps the movie because I think you is like, you get like all the stuff on the ship. And again, the, the more, serious nature of it even though there are still moments of levity the more serious nature of everything that happens on the ship alongside sort of the the silliness of stuff on the ground and eventually you know when they're trying to convince um cochran 
of like his place in history uh you know again you're kind of like his incredulous at that that or it's like on the ship it's more so like okay well you know we're, we're sneaking around the corner and okay well we, if we ignore the borg you know they won't notice us until we attack them so let's just quietly walk past them it's a nice bit of pacing well i think you know, there, there's a there's a there is a trick that this movie pulls that i actually think is a is a is a good trick for movies to pull is that really it's a movie that i feel sometimes that when a movie embraces the knowledge that it's all going to work out in the end mm -hmm. like you're not going to you don't go into these movies expecting like sometimes like for a big surprise everything doesn't work out ending mm -hmm. and sometimes it's best for i think a movie to embrace that aspect of it because then you can focus on other different things so it so in this case what i mean is that you know a lot of the drama and how all the characters especially picard uh fights through this conflict with the board and how borg and how he physically and emotionally and mentally deals with all that is the emotional meat and the crux of the film and then the, all the business on earth is kind of played in a more fun loose let's have fun with this type of way yeah and because it, it's played in a way where you're never you're you're never really um led to believe that like this is like they play the stakes even though the stakes are technically high they play them very casually when they're on the uh when they're on earth so it allows for there to have some sort of fun and some levity um as an opposite like a, as a chaser to the drama that's going on with the borg yeah so in that way i actually think it's a benefit to the movie that it, it doesn't play every single high stakes as such well especially because like once you're on the ground like there's a couple scenes where, you know once you get this whole thing there's uh, many scenes where you know Riker and and jordy and everybody are telling cromwell like your statue is going to be right here and this will be a museum and like you, you're like the most important person in history. And there's kind of like this just running gag of just like, you know, them just basically treating him like, you know, he's he's he is like Abraham Lincoln to an extent or like he is that. So there's kind of that nice little bit, although there is a moment when they first tell him that um, he's like this big hero in history where like, you know, they do the thing where it's like they show him the Enterprise and he's like, he thinks it's a trick. He thinks it's an in in. Um, telescope trick and then you know he realizes that like oh this is a real these are actually possibly time travelers and he goes like and then you guys are all astronauts in some sort of star trek so i was like okay oh yeah 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 that's the one yeah you guys on some sort that's of like that's star one trek. step that's that's one that's a little bit much that's one step away from looking into the camera and being like this has been one big magnum opus <laughs> that's an inside joke none of you know that um, uh some of you know that but What's also an interesting story choice, too, is that relatively speaking, they keep that storyline and the Borg storyline fairly separate. Yes, other than that, like, that, that's yeah. That's like an interesting thing because it's not like, I don't know, you would think that in another movie they would intertwine those in the story beats a little bit more. Yeah. So it almost allows a real A plot, B plot to happen that you know, are related because it's all about the same conflict, but all this business with the on earth is more of this like hopeful, fun, 
like they don't tie in like it, it's interesting like this is how i look at it because that moment the film keeps the integrity of the first contact moment instead <clears throat> of like going back and like doing kind of like a and obviously no no slight on it but like this back to the future type thing it's not trying to intertwine it's like when they went back in time and the board got involved and now everybody everybody is like changed and happier they kind of keep this like integrity of the history of star trek of this first contact moment separate from the borg stuff so they can say that as more of a hopeful reaching for the stars and how do you deal with like you know you your place in history type of um more uh more hopeful feel but then also going back to keeping the the driving momentum of the borg storyline and just keeping that as a separate in in a separate lane yeah because really other than the inciting incident of the borg initially attacking earth and like you know destroying part of the ship like the borg never come down to earth or anything like that uh throughout the film And, and it really you're right it really is to the film's benefit because i think if you had like them fighting Borg on the ground and fighting Borg on the surface or, or and the ship or whatever, it just again would feel a lot samey. You're going back from action sequence to action sequence, where I feel like, again, some of the, the lighter stuff gets to that lighter part of track and the silly time travel stuff, not as much as like you know maybe the Voyage Home does, but it still has that kind of silly time travel fun that Star Trek is really known for and its time travel stuff. Uh, and then on the ship, you do get again the the, the more serious drama. And everything like that. And I think that it really just helps benefit the movie, especially because then you really do get to have this this journey with Cromwell and, and Zeprim Cochrane. And another thing I'm really glad is that they don't do they, you know, one of the original things that I mentioned is that, oh, it's gonna be like, you know, Cochrane was out cold, so Picard had to do the, the journey. But I'm really right. happy. Well, that's that what I mean. It's like they, they still they, they did they still did give mm-hmm. Cochrane his journey and his emotional moment throughout the film and through like all the scenes on Earth to really build him as like, well, he will eventually become this legendary figure that he has it in him, which I think is really nice. Yeah. I think it's an aspect definitely of the film that I think is a surprisingly underrated aspect of the film is how it is able to juggle the two stories in the way that it does. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about the, another moment that is great on the, on the ground is again, we had talked about Jordy has this whole thing where he talks to, with the Cochrane about, well, this is going to be, your it's going to be a museum and your statue is going to be right there. And I went to Zephyr Cochran high school and like Cochran basically is like, uh, like, you know, I got to take a leak and you know, he, he has, he has, you know, Jordy's a little confused at first. He's like, don't you people have bathrooms in the future, which more specifically put in because you never see bathrooms in star Trek uh, shows. So we, we wanted to put a little little gag about like, well, yeah, like, you know, I guess they do have to pee eventually. Uh, so that stuff is just all very fun. And again, like you get that kind of I, I, I really think it also kind of showcases those characters, right? Like, you know, you get Jordy's kind of this initial smartness about engineering, but that he is still kind of like an engineering fanboy. Riker is like a really good friend to have, I feel like, which I always kind of appreciate about the Riker character. Is like he's he's the type of guy who's like he's gonna bust your balls a little bit. He's gonna he's gonna like you know give you some some the, the words you need to hear. But he's just like kind of a fun dude to have around. So I think all that sort of fun and even like again that moment with Diana where she's like kind of the drunk counselor earlier on. I think is is all really great moments with those characters. And I think you get them too. Like I think like uh, back on the ship. Like again like when you have the emergency ho- uh, medical hologram moment where Crusher's trying to get everybody out and she's like basically trying, she gets to be her own hero 
where she like brings him up. He's, and I like the moment too, where like the reason you never see him on the show is like, I, I would never use this normally. Like she basically is like, it's just a last ditch effort. And she's like, you know what? Like I'm, I'm, I'm meant to get out medical advice. <laughs> they even give the, the hologram, the line. I'm a doc. I'm, I'm a doctor, not like a, a showman or whatever. But they like, you know, Crusher's like, I don't know, do a dance, tell a story, just do something, give us a moment, which is, I think it's fun for Crusher. And then, you know, the rest of the ship gets everything. Warp, again, Warp's great. I love the moment where, you know, they start like attacking Borg and they immediately adapt and Warp's like, well, they've adapted and immediately hits him with his gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is great. And then everything with that is, is super fun. Um, eventually, Data does get taken and then Picard is accosted by Lily who's like, again, super confused about what's going on. She thinks she's some enemy Russian ship or a, you know, a eugenic ship or whatever. Um, she is not part of the Eastern Coalition. Uh, eventually, she does believe him that they're on a spaceship from the future. And they're kind of the big, you know, the two of them have the big sort of stuff on the ship uh, together. Especially when they're running away and they make their way into the uh, hologram uh, room. And uh, he brings up a, a little detective novel uh, featuring Nikki the Nose, mm-hmm. which, again, the, the, another thing that the, the hologram stuff is always really fascinating to me about the next generation is this this hologram thing, especially because the whole the whole thing leads to is that he's like goes to the wrong scene. And so he's like trying to find a gun. He, he shoots down the Borg and he's like. I thought these were holograms they have, but I turned off the safety features. It's like, right, why right, does right. the hologram room have like safety features on it in the first place? Which I guess you could technically say it's like freeze for training or whatever, but like the hologram stuff's always fun. And it's also fun to see um, Picard in like, you know, the forties vibe. And like, he has the moment where like he's dancing with Lily and he's like trying to avoid the Borg, like act natural. So they don't know we're here, but then he's accosted by like the, the novels, like lead female character where, you know, he's like, you know, like you, you, you thought you'd dance with me, like get rid of the broad and dance with me when you come back from talking to Nikki to nose, like, like, like whatever the character's name is. And like, you know, she's like super, like, really, like, really. Uh, And Picard's just like, listen, I'm just going to shoot down the Borg. And he has this like Rambo moment where he just like yells. He's like, ah, like gunning down the Borg with a machine gun. It's fun stuff. It is fun stuff. Yeah. It's, um, it is, um, and that was just like a, a a smart, clever way to like how to dispatch the Borg in that moment by yeah. using like a like essentially a gun because you know they're you know they're not assimilated to that and like yeah I, I thought that was a and they they again they do a lot of smart stuff with in terms of how the different ways they have to deal with the Borg and even like the little moments where like right at the beginning I was mentioning where it's like hey like if we ignore them, they will ignore us, like at least to a degree. So let's just like walk past them in that little moment where they're like going through that. But we also get these moments with Picard where like one of the, you know, one of the red shirts is getting assimilated and like he's begging for help as all these like tubes are coming across and becoming more metal. And Picard literally just shoots him like, like with like a phaser to like, like kind of knock him out. And like, he's like, I can't do anything. And that comes up later, but this is the sort of, fear and again this emotion that Picard has towards the Borg is really sort of ramped up throughout the movie and I think like you get to see his bigger desperation and his bigger like actions towards the Borg as the movie goes on and he becomes more crazy about them um, which I think again great little writing and character development throughout the movie as you kind of build this up and then he has this big moment where he realizes he's wrong later Mm. Uh, but also I've just mentioned Data gets captured 
and is taken into the heart of this Borg operation. The Borg have taken over basically half the ship now. Um, and this is where we're introduced to the Borg Queen, um, who uh, is very, um, very interesting, I guess is how I would say. Kind of the classic sort of everything else is so cold, but we're going to have the, the, the kind of sexy queen leader, I guess, is, is part of it. Um, but I know because I, I know in terms of development, it was very difficult because they wanted like a, a, a leader to, to, to have this stuff with data. And originally it was just going to be like a ship computer thing, but they felt it was too not interesting. So despite all yeah, like because the idea is that it's just a physical manifestation of the Borg collective. Yes. Yeah. That, that, yeah. And so they come up with the queen character and like, you know, she kind of, like she is the beginning, like, you know, she's the beginning and she's the end. She is the collective. They are all one collective, but she is kind of that physical manifestation of, right. and probably one of many physical and, you know, manifestations, right? Like she's not the only Borg queen, but she's like a representative of that element of the Borg. One, one thing that I think is actually important to point out at least for me is like how much like this now the, the boar queen is like one of like the lasting kind of iconic things from this movie mm -hmm. like the fact that like so me coming into this movie like i knew about the borg and i knew about the boar queen mm -hmm. but it was watching this movie that i realized that oh this was the introduction of the boar queen as a character who would go on to be, she would go on to do it in other forms of media and as yeah. well as like some of the other shows too. Yeah, yeah. She, yeah, she was eventually come back for Voyager. Um, she was in uh, one of the Las Vegas Star Trek uh, rides that they had at the Star Trek experience. And I think she also comes back for a video game. So, uh, and the same actress too, Alice, uh, Alex so Krieger. So. And then just what so what's interesting about it for me is like that they do such a good job at creating an iconic aspect of Star Trek lore to mm -hmm. the point that it became so associated with it that I had just thought like this was a character that was a part of it the whole time. Oh, yeah, so for sure. That's just the mark of like a good um, lasting. Yeah, so it's interesting. It's, it's well it's well written, too, especially because like, you know, most of her scenes in the movie are her playing off of data. And sort of you kind of have what's interesting is you do have sort of this data character, right, who is still sort of dealing with his desire to be more human and sort of the um, his his loyalty to the ship and everything like that. And then you have the Borg Queen, who is part of this kind of cybernetic collective, but the way that she represents herself is trying to appeal. Right. She's trying to be like the devil on data's shoulder there, there is more of an emotion from her even than from data which i feel like is a very interesting thing and it's also because it's not the first thing you think of when you think of the borg the borg are very known for their cold demeanor right and they're assimilated and all personality is wiped out so the fact that this kind of queen representative does have a lot of personality and emotion but still has that cold aspect to her I think it just is a testament to the writing of of the character. Yeah, yeah, I I, I completely agree. Uh, you know, and she's basically, you know, they, we kind of cut through her a couple times through the movie with Data, and she's kind of teasing him with the ability to actually feel pain, 
that there, she's like uh, grafting like human skin onto him. They also have a tease of his, um, he, he is fully functional uh, sexually, mm-hmm. um, which is again, a nice little moment where when he says like the last time I used my sexuality function was eight years ago, that's actually a specific reference to an episode of the next generation mm-hmm. yeah, where like yeah. they explored that. Uh, but they, they kind of tease into like that. They're going to have a little bit of the sexy times together. And at one point she does say like, was it, was it good for you uh, as well? So they're kind of playing a lot of fun throughout those, those yeah, moments. And, 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 in a and cause way, it's also, yeah. And data is a fun character and Spiner, we know plays that character super well. So to have him in this environment is also a treat for us to watch, you know, Spiner kind of have these little moments with data as well. Yeah. And, and it also speaks to kind of what you were talking about earlier about like the, or alluding to was the kind of like the underlying, like what is the Borg after? And we're kind of given a little bit more insight into that. They actually don't heavily get into it as much. They kind of, it's kind of like something that they mention at the end about how that the Borg is all about like assimilating and everything, but also there is this kind of interest in the Borg seeing if they can bridge the gap between, you know, you know being a robot and being human so there's you know that's kind of like why they had it had such a um uh it was so enamored by picard Mm -hmm. and um and then it's and so it's hinted throughout the movie by even the board queen enticing data with flesh at all yes like so you know i i think that's like an interesting aspect about the character Mm -hmm. uh so again we're 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 kind of on the ship and Basically, they kind of figure out why uh, the one question that they start to have is that they have like security teams and 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 Worf is kind of leading these security teams. And the big question is, it's like they've taken over like decks like 16 through 11, but they stopped at 11. And Worf's like, they wouldn't stop for no reason. There's a reason that they stopped there. And there's like, like they're like, what's over there? It's like, well, sick bay's on there. Like this, this one deflector dish. That's like nothing like vital to the ship, but then picard when he realizes when he hears this realizes oh they're going to reformat the deflector dish to um you know give a signal to the borg of this time so that they can take over earth it's basically a backup plan to make sure that you know you know hey first contact's not going to happen and we're going to assimilate now we're going to get all the borg on earth and you know assimilate this war-torn you know earth so they have to it's so it's Picard, Wharf, and another uh red shirt, as they say in the business, um have to go outside in their zero gravity shoes. Played by Neil McDonough. Yes. <laughs> uh to um uh to basically take the dish off. And again, again, like the little moments where Picard and Wharf, it's like, Wharf, what do you remember about your zero gravity training? <laughs> And Worf's like immediately looks horrified. It's like, I remember it made me sick to my stomach. Why? And then eventually they all have to go out. And, it, and it's kind of this. I like this a lot, too. This sequence of them trying to like secretly again, like the nice tension and the horror vibes where they're like secretly have to like, you know, turn all these knobs. And like, you know, it's like a three part thing where they all have to do it and they have to do it without the Borg really noticing them at all. And like eventually it's like, you know, again, they get the one shot off, like one Borg notices them and they get the shot off, but then the other Borg start to assimilate. So they have to like kind of do it quickly. Like the, the one red shirt, like it's killed in it, but it's like, a, it's a very nice directed scene of 
you know, kind of this this little mini like kind of tension filled sequence in the like kind of in the middle of the movie. Um, and and just like again, just like really showcasing the the space aspect, which is you know you don't really get a lot of stuff of outside space in Trek. So the fact that they're like kind of doing this big thing um, is kind of a nice little sight to see. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's that. That's a nice scene, and then we get it back into the ship. And, you know, basically it's like, okay, we've done that, but the Borg are, they're still going to be here. We still have to get rid of them. This is where the suggestion comes up that they blow up the ship and Picard is adamant. No, they have to escape. No, he calls Worf a coward for wanting to escape. And I love this moment where Worf is immediately just, he's so disgusted as a Klingon by being called a coward mm-hmm. and you can tell in the anger in his face, but then he like just gets right in Picard's face. It's like, if you were any other man, I would kill you on the spot. And it's just very much like, again, it gets into like his Klingon heritage. It gets into his respect for Picard. It gets into sort of like the, the, just the amount, uh, the way that Klingons have come from their appearances in the original series to now where they can like actually hold back on that stuff. It's, it's a really just nice little moment that showcases so much about the Trek universe and so much about these characters that I really, really like that moment. Yeah. It's a great moment. It's a great moment for those characters too, just as a relationship beat. Um, yeah, it's good. I like but, it. And it's also right. the, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say, but then like the whole thing is like, well, the rest of the crew still respects Picard as their captain, which we were kind of talking about. Like he's kind of the, the duty bound man and the military. You know. So even Crusher's like, 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 why don't you like, you know, Lily's like, you know, why don't you just like do it? And Lily's uh, Crusher's like, well, it's the captain's orders. And like, we may not like it, but that's like the integrity of the ship. Well, the essentially. Way, it, it, I, I like the way that, that, that she put it too. that they put in the movies. Like when it's like when the captains made up their mind, it's like, that's what we do. But the way she says it too, kind of shows like, you know, everybody kind of, everybody's their own individual person. So like yeah. she ha- was less conflicted about it. Like, mm-hmm. so the way that she said it, it's like, you know, the, the, this is the person you stand behind. Whereas like somebody like Worf is a little bit more, um outward about it yeah. yeah yeah but we i we did run over the the best wharf moment of the entire movie was when they're 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 all reconvening back on the deck and lily comes up sees wharf for the first time and wharf's immediately like i'm a klingon <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah he's just immediately that- that is the best moment of like my favorite moment of the movie. <laughs> it's so it's so warp and it's so like Klingon where he's mm-hmm. just like, especially Klingon in this era of Trek where it's just like, yeah, it's like I am a Klingon. Like it's just like, of course, the matter of fact, like not not really thinking about like what that means. But but then through this, we get to the big famous Picard going crazy scene where we talked about a little bit earlier where Lily kind of comes in and basically is like, you're an idiot for not wanting to blow up the ship. And basically it's like, you know, Picard is like, like, Oh, you think I want revenge? Like we in the future are are way past those petty things. And she's like, bullshit. Captain Ahab. And he eventually gets like, what did you call me? You do have books in the future. Right. And then essentially it all boils down to like, no, 
no breaks the glass with all the previous enterprise models like the line must be drawn here this far no further like classic picard moment like just a classic patrick stewart thing and uh um he it's just he it's him it's so patrick stewart because it's him like eating up that scenery but also still in a very kind of grounded shakespearean yeah, way yeah that, like that's, that's really what that's really what, what 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 patrick stewart is all about is that like it's it's not like over the top scene tunery but it's just enough where it's like it's just fun it's a fun moment to watch mm-hmm. especially once as he comes down from it and eventually you know does realize like that is the only course of action to do is the to, to, to blow up the ship yeah and i think one thing that we haven't really talked about enough is just that relationship between Picard and Lily. Yes. Like, yeah. I was going to, it's, it's just a very sweet human friendship relationship that I just think plays really well. And it shows, and it shows a humanity to Picard as not only just like this naval captain, but also as somebody who is fitting of the whole, um, you know, federation like you know um mantra of like you know um of um you know exploration and in the in this especially in this story of first contact and you know the the earth is about to have its first contact entering like a bigger universe in the in the greater galaxy that um they even have this like little moment of like him from the future like reach giving you know reaching out his hand to this person from the past and showing her earth and everything and mm-hmm. giving her like her moment of being like, Oh my God, we're not like a, we're not alone in the universe, blah, blah, blah. So I, I really liked just how that was all played. And, yeah, no, um, I, I really liked the two of them together. I think also Lily's a really nice way to kind of do some of that, like exposition on the Borg. You know, she plays a really nice sort of audience surrogate type of character where you can kind of explain certain aspects of the Borg to her. But I really do like the, again the chemistry between the two characters i mean they're two fantastic actors you know um, I, I also i she also had a really fun moment where because the entire time she's like have has the the phaser pointed at at picard up until a certain point at earlier in the movie and then picard like then they get on the same page picard takes the phaser he's like oh that was like fully charged you could have vaporized me with that and then she's like oh it's my first it's my first ray gun <laughs> which i thought was was really yeah. funny no and um, i think and i think she's a very enjoyable character on her own right too just the kind of the 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 the, the um the personality and sort of that that just aesthetic she plays off picard very well you know she's very much again picard has that more reserve she's a lot more outward and outspoken you know and it's like a different way than Worf is can be because Worf is still very you know very traditional Klingon still too so she so when she calls him out and calls him a Captain Ahab and everything it's like a big you know moment and when he like again like I was mentioned like that moment where he's like we in the future are past revenge and she's like bullshit like I can mm-hmm. see it in your face like it's just a nice means and it's of course it's like her and in her, in her you know past sensibilities that make Picard realize that yes he is being like he is not thinking straight in terms of this situation so it's just it's nice and i think it's a it's a nice addition to again the whole encompassing aspect of this movie mm-hmm. yeah definitely um so basically we, we get down to the nitty-gritty they decide they're gonna blow up the enterprise um which i i'll, 
I'll save my thoughts on that for a second because it's like they're, they're going to blow up the Enterprise. They're going to do a silent countdown, the self-destruction, while on Earth they're, they're getting ready for the final preparations on the launch. And basically, you know, Cromwell's more coming around to like, you know, he's still like, you know what, like he has the moment where uh, Cochrane is like, you know what? Like, I don't know why you see me as a hero. You know why I did this money. I did this so I could, you know, sell this and, and be on some beach with some babes everywhere. And listen, man, like, and I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Um, and then like Riker gives him a quote he says in the future, which I, I really like that moment where, cause I, I like the moment where he's like, you know, it's like, you know, I forget like, you know, it was like the quotes, like whatever it's like, um, oh, what is it? It's like, you know, don't try to be a great man, just be a man, you know, and, and every uh, greatness will come or whatever. And Cromwell, uh, what I like about Cromwell's performance of this moment is that he's like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, but you can kind of tell he's taking it to heart and it mm-hmm. does like sound like something he would say. And he kind of knows the answer. It's like, who the hell said that? It's like you did 10 years from now. And it's just like a nice little moment. Um, and it doesn't finish this up. Cause it's like, you get the moment where, um, they are about the launch Cromwell's like being like, really like, Oh my God, I forgot something like, and they're, and they're thinking like, it's Riker's like, we got to abort. Like we, did we check everything? And we do the checklist, everything. And then eventually like Cromwell finds it. It's like, you know, future music CD thing. And he's just playing magic carpet ride. That's like what he needs for the launch. But I really like about that is I like so much the moment where they actually get into space and they're doing the warp drive stuff. And you can immediately see Cochrane almost fall in love with it again, where he's like, whoa, this is crazy. Like he sees the earth and they're on the warp drive and he's like, like, you know, going like, whoa, this is like, this is kind of like, you can see even in the original timeline, even if he was like going for money, like you can see exactly where like his kind of like idea that this could be something more starts to pop into his head. Mm-hmm. And it's a really kind of great through line for just him becoming that heroic figure within Star Trek canon. Um, I think it's just a nice little moment. And then meanwhile, on the ship, they're getting ready to evacuate. They're getting ready to abort. But then Picard, again, hears the Borg voices again and realizes that Data is still with them. And he needs to go save Data. And so he goes to, like, the heart of the, the, the Borg area. And he confronts the Queen and they have their conversation you talked about earlier and just like kind of their relationship. And um, again, because of the collective, of course, he she knows him as Locutus of Borg. And, you know, he kind of has that relationship with with her. And then we get our we get our look at the new data um, who is this creepy half human, half machine partially with hair on one side mm-hmm. it's like a nice like little look just for like that moment in that reveal yeah they uh, they, they sell the look and the, the makeup yeah. is good yes um so we we believe that data has joined the borg and, and has taken up our offer to become more human um they're gonna shoot down the first contact ship um and 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 the nice moment too where data stops the self-destruct sequence Cause I was like, this is what I was talking about earlier. I was like, when they first did the self-destruct sequence, I forgot that the ship actually doesn't blow up. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, we re- we did this in the last movie, and it's like, okay, well, this already feels better. It feels more earned than it blowing up and getting destroyed in the last movie. But like, it's still like we've done this two movies in a row. It, it kind of feels like it does a big moment. And then I was like, I was like, 
but wait, I don't remember there anything being anything after the Enterprise E, which reminds me of another great line from Picard where oh where, yeah, yeah, where, yeah. like I think like Crusher's like, do you think they'll make more Enterprises? And then Picard's like, there are plenty of more letters in the alphabet. Like, great line. But then like I was like, I don't think the next movie has the Enterprise F. I think it's still the E, right? And then when Data like does it, it's like, oh, it's a nice moment where because Data, spoiler alert, isn't actually betraying them. He's actually mm-hmm. betraying the Borg. Yeah, it's a it's a good like it's a good moment. it's a good moment where like you realize like oh he's actually saving the ship because it was completely unnecessary that um you know they blow it up. I was similar to you where this was like a detail I I didn't remember exactly how it panned out, but my giveaway was like, well they got to get back to the future. Yes. So like right. that was my only thing like so they can't blow up the ship like so that was that was that was my thing. Mm-hmm. But um yeah no it, it's a great moment where the 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 missile the torpedoes get shot and then they miss and then like borqui there's always like it's like data and then he's like resistance is futile <laughs> and then he he karate he just, yeah, yeah he karate chops like the warp uh like the warp thing mm-hmm. uh like the warp which, gas which earlier i think that they had established that that could would just like obliterate or like melt all organic matter i think that they yes. had mentioned that to a certain degree yeah uh but it's a it's a great moment like i love the he karate chops it and then immediately gets like blown back by like mm-hmm. the gas being out and then yeah like basically the board queen just kind of melts uh through it like picard is like climbing up also picard gets to show his like old school gym skills where he's climbing up the like little like arm like uh, like the little like robot arm thing that's on the ceiling. He's like climbing up it like it's like like a like a rope. I like that. But then you know they basically data saves the day. They make this warp drive successfully, and then we get another great moment where Data and Picard are discussing everything. And he's like, I, you know, Captain, I did consider her offer uh, for a brief time, and Picard, Picard's like, how long? Point six eight seconds. But for an android. That's an eternity. But also, like, the immediately relief of, like, Picard's face. It's like, of course, Data wouldn't, like, consider it for that long. It's just, like, it was just an immediate, even for for that long Android moment, it's an immediate decision that Data knows that where he stands and where he is uh, and, and who his allegiances lie and who his friends are. So nice moment between them. Meanwhile, back on Earth, everybody's hanging out. The Vulcan ship lands. Nice little moment, too, where... Uh, uh, Cochrane briefly holds Lily's hand when he's about to do the ship. Uh, he's about to approach the ship, and I guess it's like I guess I mentioned I mentioned it's a Vulcan ship, but it's not really revealed at this time who the ship was because we get the big reveal that the 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 ears go down. We see the the the, the hood goes down. We see the ears. They do the Vulcan hand signal and the live long and prosper, and then just like me. Cochran can't do the sand signal. You guys are it's so you guys are so weird. There's I can't people, do yeah, it. Yeah, I can see that. I can't do it, man. So uh, but then Cochran offers a handshake and the initial the actual first contract is first contact is initiated and history remains on course. And they have we a, get it and we get a final make it so. Yes, we get there's a, the big parties happening on Earth. Uh, Picard and, and Riker's like it's time to to get out of here. They all beam back up to the ship. Um, uh, here, here, here's my question. 
How involved are the Vulcans in Next Generation, like the show? Not particularly. Right. So that was like one thing, because I don't ever remember them in this in what I've seen of the show and what they, I know about the show. They, so it, yeah. It, it was just nice that that was the aliens that, you know, that, and that, the that make first count. Yeah, I thought yeah. that was cool. Right. Because it's like, like, you know, Sarek makes an appearance. Obviously, Spock makes an appearance on the Next Generation, but it's not. They aren't as involved as like the Klingons and the Romulans are where a lot there's a lot more. Explore. I think it's also because in the next generation, like we had so much exploration of the Vulcans in the original series where it's like the one thing about, you know, the original series is that the Klingons and the Romulans weren't as like explored. So the fact that like uh, there's a big focus on the Romulans in the next or sorry, the 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 Klingons in the next generation due to Worf and stuff like that. But the Klingons, uh, the Vulcans aren't as involved. So you're right. It is very nice that they're, you know, part of this moment and it's in general that they're a part of this big moment within star trek history that the vulcans and humanity always have this sort of connection as like the first contact especially when you get the moment where cromwell kicks the jukebox on and the vulcan the vulcan guy who i will say also is specifically in canon an ancestor to sarek um okay he immediately like stands up with the music with the ubi doobie music and like Carmel's like no no we all dance here you know like have a dance have a whiskey and it's like we still have a long way to go but we are we are in a moment of 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 new peace and that's yes we do get the last make it so and that is star trek first contact it's it's a heck of a movie honestly it's it's a super it's a super fun watch and again it's like it showcases the best of these characters and w- of what makes the next generation the next generation. I think that it really is a movie that allows itself to stand apart from the original series films. And I think that's what you were kind of talking about earlier, that it, it is its own unique brand of Trek. And I think it's good that this movie exists because I think it's a good showcase for that brand of Trek. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's just a solid flick. It's a, it's, it's, a, a sol- it's a solid Star Trek movie. I, I'd be interested in really going through the list to see where it ends up. But I, I just think I, I, I definitely dig it. I definitely dig that it is that it has its own flavor and it makes use of that uh, very well in terms of distinguishing it from like the older crew. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was a blast to go back and revisit. Yeah, I think it's 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 definitely in my top five. Uh, treks because i i think it's actually four because i i rank i rank uh star trek 2 star trek 4 star trek 6 just ahead of it and then first context like right there too so for me that's where it is right now but also it's been a while since i've really revisited the 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 most recent films um so it'll be interesting to see any of how that any of that moves but if you, if this is if you're not as familiar with the next generation or even if you are this is just a great film to watch um and I, I highly recommend this this is one of the tracks I give my high recommendations to just in general all right with that uh unless you have any other last thoughts no. on the movie no, let's good. just let's kind of wrap this up let's talk about the aftermath um Paramount gave this a big 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 marketing push uh this was of course also being in the kind of 30th anniversary era of Trek. So of course they did it as another anniversary movie, but, but they helped produce um, a behind the scenes special for HBO and the sci-fi channel. They uh, had a big uh, special on UPN that related to their other shows. They had a Borg themed video game. They had uh, uh, different novels. They had a new start, our first contact website. 
they basically went all out on the marketing of this movie because they wanted to show you Star Trek is here to stay. Uh, and at the end of the day, it was a uh, big success. Uh, made $146 million at the box office on releasing November 22nd, 1996. Uh, was number one at the box office was the week. And then uh, next week dropped to number two behind 101 Dalmatians, the first live action version, which I just wanted to mention because that movie still does exist. Um, Cruella wasn't the first one and they've been making these remakes for a longer time than these recent era. Anyways, uh, movie was also very well reviewed, uh, generally regarded as one of the best Trek movies, um, not just with Trek audiences who love the movie, of course, but also under uh, general uh, regular critic reviews. People um, rank this just alongside Wrath of Khan and Voyage Home as one of the better Trek movies. And again, this continued on their, they continued on the myth that all the uh, all the even numbered Trek movies are good and the odd ones are bad. So this was another one in that realm. But basically, this was really well regarded. Uh, people liked how the Borg looked, how the Borg acted, like Picard's journey, like the fun and the humor, like the tension, like the action. Thought it was well directed by uh, Frakes, and everybody just thought this movie was it was a good thing. And and the box office showed that this movie uh, did, you know, make the money that it deserved and showed that Trek still had its place you know, in Paramount's, you know, as, as the golden goose of Paramount's, you know, library. Um, and of course this was kind of almost a second coming for the Borg, uh, you know, really kind of showcasing them as just as important to Trek as the Klingons and the Vulcans and the Romulans, like another important sort of alien race. Um, to the degree that again, the Borg video game came out, they, they would eventually do the ride at uh, Vegas and that a lot of these costumes would be reused so that the Borg could appear on Voyager. Uh, so the Voyager got to use all the really good Borg costumes and, and would play a very big part in the later seasons of Voyager as well. Um, so that wraps up. That just about wraps up our look at this movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, there was one thing I did not mention that I oh, would yeah. be remiss if I didn't mention. The score is good. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's it's Goldsmith, and I think it's... I think it's the main theme I like quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I, I think the main theme of the movie is really good. Yes, yes. I think it's 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 in terms of Goldsmith Star Trek stories, it is right up there with the, the motion picture. Because mm-hmm. I was never I've never been a huge, huge fan of um the way he adapts his score in um Star Trek Five. Like I think it's good. I don't think it's like blown away, but like I think this movie is a different return to kind of form for Goldsmith in terms of his Star Trek canon. So yeah, good job on Goldsmith. And again, Goldsmith's son did get to write a few cues for the movie as well. So kind of a nice family uh, moment there. But yeah, so that is Star Trek First Contact from 1996. That wraps it up here. Next time on the Star Trek side of things, um, we are going to be heading into... Uh, another odd number Star Trek movie. So in terms of the mythos, you know what that means. Um, and I have very many opinions on this movie and I'm very excited to revisit it and see if I still have the same opinions on this movie. We are heading into Star Trek Insurrection. First time viewing for me. I will be very interested to see some of the things you take from this movie. Looking forward to it. But next time is not a Star Trek film. Next time we are beginning a brand new franchise 
and it's going to be Pirates of the Caribbean, which Will and I uh, will definitely discuss more on that next episode. We will kind of have a, like we did with Kong and Trek, we'll kind of have kind of an overview of why we chose it and, and uh, you know, kind of what we're expecting and kind of our memories of it going into it. Um, I'm very excited for this kind of mini series of films and uh, especially going through that original trilogy again, which again, you and I are big defenders of uh, not that the, not that this first film needs defending because everybody loves this one, but the next episode you'll hear from us. We'll talk about the first pirates of the Caribbean movie pirates of the Caribbean curse of the black pearl. Yeah. A true, uh, in, in this case, a true naval, high seafaring adventure mm-hmm. yes uh, i i'm i'm very much we and again we will we will get to we will get to see the ship from star trek generations once again on the big screen or on the small screen whatever you're watching it on awesome all right everybody that about wraps it up thanks again will for uh joining us along the journey we're always happy to have you and we're happy to uh you know be here be on the recording be on the mic we're happy to do it bonzillapod at gmail.com twitter.com slash bonzilla 007 tell all your friends we have new episodes you know maybe you like that one twitter user that thought we were done maybe other people thought we we're done so go tell your friends we you have a bunch of really great episodes and you guys love listening to them so thanks again facebook.com says bonzilla level seven like and subscribe itunes and on soundcloud again can never thank you guys enough it really, it really did touch my heart that you guys listened in on that um, Cannonball Run episode, even with Will not here and it kind of us doing a different thing and even with the little audio issue that I had on it. Um, you guys still listen to it and I'm very happy for that. So thanks again. All right. Take care, everybody. All right. Bye. And you people, you're all astronauts on some kind of Star Trek.